Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 354. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 354 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, and educator Tom Gordon, who's worked with Ozzy Osbourne, The Beach Boys, Willie Nelson, Dr. Dre, Whitesnake, Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden, Laurie Anderson, and many, many, many others. Tom's got an eclectic clientele, to say the least, and he comes to us as a recommendation from our good friend and former WCA guest, Mike Blodgett. Tom and Mike have a musical history that goes back to Reno, Nevada, where Tom is currently living and working, and I very much look forward to having him on today. So, Tom Gordon, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about being inspired in your recording practice by participating in other things. Sometimes in the world of recording, I think some of us run out of steam or inspiration. It's happened to me over the years, various times, and it comes kind of without warning. What I find interesting is that for me, I have found inspiration in other things that end up inspiring me in the world of recording. Case in point, I've brought this up before. I'm a big fan of the subscription service called Masterclass. Recently, I've been uh, watching the graffiti artist Futura talk about the practice of being a graffiti artist. How to use spray paint to make art. I have no desires of being a graffiti artist, but watching him work, watching him dig so deep into his art, I find very inspiring. Some of the things he says, some of the techniques he uses, I see parallels to the world of recording. Here's another example. My father-in-law came out from Michigan to help take the shed that we are converting into my wife's office and we did some construction on it. We removed an old door and replaced it with a window. And we took out an existing window and replaced it with an opening for a sliding glass door. Now, I don't have a lot of construction experience. There's some that I can claim from working on studios and doing that, but not much. So this is a man who built his first house with his own hands. So it was a no-brainer for my wife and I to fly him out to help us out and kind of be the guiding force or the producer of the project. And in that process, I definitely gained a lot more confidence in my building skills and could start to see how it all is put together. And I found parallels, once again, to the world of recording. You know, where you put the framing, how you put the two by fours in. When something isn't right, you correct it, you make it right. You know, you have a good foundation of framing so that you can put drywall on top of it successfully and paint it so that it looks like a proper office, right? All of these things pertaining to construction, I'm sure you all can see how it compares or is similar to the world of recording. These inspirations can be found in a number of places, and it's up to us as individuals to find it. Sometimes it shows up unexpectedly, and we can discover new inspiration in participating in events, creating something with somebody else, watching a show that has nothing to do with the, with the world of recording. So if you're running out of steam and you're tired of the same old techniques and you just 
can't bring yourself to watching any more YouTube videos about, you know, what's the best way to get a kick drum sound? Top 10 ways to mic an actor on a set. 50 different ways to do sound design for your video game. Whatever you're doing, if you're running out of steam on that stuff, step away. It's okay. Devote a little time to yourself on your calendar, which I've talked about in the past. Use that calendar. Block some time out. Go do something else entirely different, purely for the enjoyment of it or purely to create something new. Don't go into it with the agenda that I'm hoping to get something out of this to inspire my recording practice. You just gotta get involved and you will see when it occurs. You'll see something, something will get triggered in you and you'll think, aha, ooh, I like how that wall is framed in. Ooh, I like how this person is using this spray technique on this piece of canvas to make a piece of art. Something will set you off and you'll, you'll immediately think back to what I'm talking about and you'll say, aha, uh -huh, I see what Matt's talking about. You know, anytime you're in too deep into anything, it pays off to pull away from it for a bit, clear your head, get fresh ideas, and then re-engage with the thing that you love so that you can really, really bring your A-game to the table. So that's it, not much to it. I think you get the gist of it. You basically get burned out a little bit, step away, go do something else, find the inspiration, bring that inspiration back into the recording practice and carry on. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Tom Gordon here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you kindly for having me. Yeah. Could you tell us where you grew up? I was born and raised in Reno, Nevada, which is a place that some people have heard of and there, not many people know where it is. <laughs> it's uh, right on the corner of Nevada, you know, because we have the vertical part and then in a diagonal, it's right at that corner. And it's about 45 minutes away from Lake Tahoe, two hours from Sacramento and four hours from the Bay Area. And due to the way the states are lined up, Reno is actually farther west than Los Angeles. I never knew that. Yep. And I'm and I'm in Northern California. How did I not know exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah. Well, so when you were growing up, what role did music play in your upbringing? A very big one. My parents were musical theater kids mm. and that carried through. My mom was kind of in the more in the production design costuming, but my dad was a light man and ended up being a light man at one of the local cabaret showrooms at one of the casinos, Harris, and was a light guy there for 41 years and was doing lights for the Brat Pack. He was friends with Sammy Davis Jr. and all these folks. And so a lot of the music from these people he had worked with would sift into our home, a lot of show soundtracks, a lot of classical. And I got, I got, I got a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine that came out of Harris. So I was fascinated how that worked and I could start listening to music on this thing that stored music connected to this tape. And I had no idea how, and I was fascinated with this <laughs> thing that would just somehow make music out of oxide. What the hell? And in the late seventies, I, someone turned me on to kiss and I was like, Oh, okay. It's on now. It's on now. So much for the show tunes and the classical it's on now. See, and soon, soon the follow was cheap trick. And then Kansas was the gateway drug into rush. And then, then it was all over. And I realized, man, this kiss alive two record has four sides on it. And what a pain in the butt to flip the records over. I have this reel to reel machine, kind of like the one behind me up here. Mm -hmm. If I did it at the slowest speed and that one did 1.78 dips, I could actually fit all four sides on one reel 
and not have to flip the sides over. So how flipping convenient is that? And uh, sonically, who cares? It's still wider tape than cassettes at one one seven eight zips, but yeah, I was stupid anyway. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I got fascinated with the convenience of, of tape, and then I started playing drums, and was actually in a band with our mutual friend Mike Blodgett called Ultimate Dilemma. And the first recording session I ever did was with Mike at a studio across town. Then the second session was here at this studio, and 15 years later, I ended up taking over the same studio I recorded in when I was in high school. Funny how that works. Now, I got to ask, now, it's not Las Vegas, but Reno, Correct. you know, still, I mean, there's there's hotels with casinos, there's entertainment going on. Correct. What's that like growing up in a town like that where it's there's constant entertainment? Well, in terms of people coming here to do the work, it was a dream. So we got so many exceedingly talented musicians moving here in the 60s and 70s because there was steady work in the showroom bands and they didn't have to go on the road they could buy a house start a family it was really a dream deal so i was surrounded by astonishing players growing up and was able to take lessons with debbie reddle's drummer jerry Gennario. and wow what i say now reno has an enormous amount of talent per capita because either these amazing musicians are still here or they've had very talented offspring. So we're, we're, we're very fortunate with the amount of talent here. So there was a lot of, a lot of hoopla with the, the celebrities that would come here. And the studio's biggest claim to fame before I was involved was Endless Love. It was recorded in Reno in 1980. I have the plaque for it on the wall over here. The owner of this studio, uh, Dr. Davis, owned the studio when Diana Ross was here doing a gig at Harris for a week. And when you were a performer performing at Harris, you were under contract where you couldn't leave for the, your engagement. And she all of a sudden got asked to do this song for this movie and she couldn't leave Reno. So they flew Lionel Richie up with the tapes and the studio back then was called Sunwood. And this is where they cut the vocals. And it's the only Academy Award nominated song recorded in Reno. Wow. Before, yeah. <laughs> so there are a lot of interesting little tidbits buried in the shadows here in Reno. Do you think that, and, and we'll of course get into this as, as we get deeper into your story, but I'm just curious about Reno and Vegas. There's a lot of entertainers there and there's the possibility for a ton of recording. Why do you think we don't hear about Nevada as more of a recording or music mecca? Fabulous question. A polite input real quick. It's pronounced Nevada, not Nevada. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Busted. Busted. <laughs> so that has been a question that my contemporaries and I have been trying to deal with for a very long time. We were thinking we would have production facilities in both Reno and Vegas that would be close enough to major markets where they could co away from their distractions of their local market and get some work done. So for many years in Reno, we had a studio called Granny's House. That was a eight bedroom, two studio bed and breakfast kind of studio that was built in 86 and closed about five years ago with the giant SSL room. And we had some major acts come through there. And I was the head engineer for, for, for a few years. I worked there for about eight years when all of a sudden done it. And this is where Two White Snake albums were recorded. Ronnie James Dio recorded there. I worked with Ozzy there. Boys to Men, Dr. Dre. I did half of Chronic 2001 with Dr. Dre at Granny's. So it was far enough away to be away from LA's distractions. But everyone said, you know, you would have done better if you had put it up in Lake Tahoe and make it more of a destination place. Mm. 
So same with Vegas. Vegas had a similar idea with the studio at the Palms, the studio inside the Palms Casino. And it's this amazing complex with the Abbey Road's old knee VR and all the hit factory people. When that closed in New York, they swooped them all up and flew them out to Vegas to, to start running studio at the Palms. And Michael Jackson recorded there and some huge people did some work there, but nothing stuck. And, and both Granny's house and Studio at the Palms are gone. These large room complexes don't seem to work outside of a major market such as New York or LA or London. Hmm. And it's studios like this one or smaller that are doing it to every large studio around the world. The overhead of such a large complex is enormous. Yeah. So a project studio like yourself and, and, and this, you know, this is probably the second largest commercial studio left in, in Reno, but it's the longest running commercial studio in the state of Nevada. This opened in 1982 hmm. in this location. And it was smaller and leaner than a big complex like Granny's house. So it was able to survive the shift of pro audio getting cheap and yeah. affordable and able to do at home, which took out the big wave of big rooms first and then the, the medium-sized rooms second. And now we're stuck at smaller rooms and really good home studios and and we're trying to weather as best we can. Well, let's get back to, to your trajectory. When did recording come onto your radar as something that was important to you? Okay, I was first turned on to recording basically in high school with a hand-me-down reel-to-reel Sony tape deck that had come from the Harris Club. And I started recording groups I was in that came into my garage and I had a couple really cheesy electric condenser microphones that plugged into this old Sony and I'm like capturing these performances and I'm like, okay, that's fun. I can hear it back. God, I suck. <laughs> and I really should have practiced better. And then I went to USC on a percussion scholarship. I was a drummer and was fortunate enough to get into the University of Southern California playing drums. And I had to record my own audition tape and learning the, the repertoire and trying to create a, a miking environment before internet. So I'm playing with mic positions on snare drums and xylophones in my garage to try to get something that sounds like a reasonably good recording for my audition tape. So they're like, wow, your audition tape sounded pretty darn good. Where'd you do it? I go, my garage. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't know any better. <laughs> and then when I got to USC and heard what the curriculum for a percussion performance major was, which was mostly classical performing, and I didn't really have the jazz chops for a jazz performance major, I was like, I'm not that good at mallet percussion and i studied with monsters at usc dale anderson was the guy who did all the mallet percussion for all the warner brother cartoons all the bugs bunny cartoons all that crazy xylophone stuff that's dale and wow. he was my teacher for like two years and he's even with the greatest guy in the world who had all the best chops i just the instrument just didn't speak to me right so then drum set i was a big rush head a rock guy and there's no room for that in most collegiate music programs so they announced they were, they were creating a recording arts program. And there was an SSL 4000E console on campus with a Studer 800 Mark III. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll switch majors from recording arts. And I was the 13th person to enroll in USC's recording arts program and ended up having to be at USC for five years because I, I switched my sophomore year. What was your takeaway from that from that program? Well, it was massive and it's so big that I now am using it to design a recording arts program here at UNR with a classmate from USC who moved to Reno about 10 years ago. We were ranked number three in the nation when it opened because there weren't that many recording arts programs. 
out there then. Hmm. University of Miami was and still is number one collegiately in terms of a four-year program versus you know your full sales and SAEs and then Central Tennessee State. There were so few back then where I really appreciated the fact that I got all the technical background, which made me a good engineer, but it forced me to take music classes too because I was a drummer. I didn't have to play a lot of melodic instruments, you know, forced me to take more piano, do the mallet percussion. And that made me a better producer where I could actually speak the language of music to other performers and be more effective in communicating with players while I'm hitting play and record and knowing where to put the right microphone at the right distance. So it, I, I liked the program a lot. And I even did a voluntary senior recital. I didn't have to, but I just like the whole concept of encapsulating what you've learned in a situation like that. So I did a Halloween senior recital and the price of admission was jack-o'-lanterns and we lined the stage <laughs> with all these jack-o'-lanterns and everyone was in costume. I was Michael Myers and we we filmed it and we ran stereo dat and you know live to tube track capture because we didn't have a remote 24 track back then in 91. So it was pushing every boundary of my playing, my recording and production and promoting. You know, I had to, I put on a show and I learned how to promote it and all the follow through on something like that. I had to create programs. That's why they make students do recitals. So they learn how to promote themselves and how to execute it professionally. So why would recording be any different? When you left and you graduated, did your plans of where you were intending to wind up line up with where you ultimately wound up? It was pretty close. There weren't many options in Reno, but I wasn't sure if I was going to come back to Reno. We had created a USC chapter of the Audio Engineering Society while mm -hmm. I was down there, and we were doing tours of various facilities, and we got to tour A&M Records when it was still A&M Records, and we met Shelly Yakis on that tour, hmm. and Shelly said, for all y'all who are from another market, you might want to go back to the market you came from and be a big fish in a small pond rather than be a small fish in a big pond, because there's a million fish in this pond down here in Los Angeles. And that's why I said, you know, there's that granny's house back home in Reno. And so I reached out my last spring break my, of my final year to, to the people at granny's house and managed to, to score an interview where I promptly screwed up the fact that I didn't know any model numbers. I walked in and I saw this giant SSL console, just like what we had, a giant Studer two-inch machine, just like what we had. He's like, you know this stuff. I go, yeah, I'm learning on the same SSL. And they're like, was it a 4,000 or a 6,000? And I'm like, looks just like yours. He's like, well, the busting is different. I'm like, oh. Um, <laughs> but the tape machine's identical. Totally, totally identical. And they said, oh, is it a, an 800 or an 80? I'm like, it looks just like this. <laughs> and then, oh, well, the reverb unit, there's a Lark on your console here. And it looks like, you know, it's a Lexicon. We have a Lexicon reverb just like that. So, well, that's the Lark for the 480 or the 224. Which one do you have? I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I went back to LA and memorized all the model numbers. And I teach my students to learn model numbers first out of the gate. <laughs> Outside of USC, what was your first real studio experience where you really were in a professional environment? Are you sitting down? I'm sitting down. Okay, good. Because this is the gift that keeps on giving. My first gig at Granny's house, I did land a gig at Granny's house the September after I graduated by weird coincidences. And I walked in as a, an intern, basically. And I said, so who are we working with? And they said, uh, Millie Vanilli. <laughs> and I laughed, just like you, just like that. 
You nailed it. Yep. Good job, Matt. And they looked at me and said, no, really. I'm like, oh, oh, sorry. Okay. Really? Really, Vanilli? Turns out we were doing the Rob and Fab comeback album where they actually sang. Oh. And they had tried every place in the world after the whole scandal to try to do an album where they actually sang. And the people who were running Granny's house at the time were the only people who were willing to give it give it a shot. And so my first 10 months in the industry was doing the Rob and Fab album where they actually sang. And I actually just came back from Los Angeles two weeks ago being interviewed for the new documentary movie being made about Millie Vanilli, about my time doing the Rob and Fab record. And I was on VH1 Behind the Music about it and Tragic Tales of Fame. Yeah. But I got nine credits on that record. So I first record out and I had enough credits to join Neris. Wow. Okay. So I just, I have to pause for a second. So for the younger listeners. <laughs> well, well said, well said, Matt. Yes. I got to just nail this right now. Basically, Millie Vanilli put out a record. These two very definitely made for the MTV video generation. Oh, yeah. Guys. Two gorgeous were, guys. Were like the, the face of this. And it was a top selling record. It was the fourth highest selling album in history at that point. The scandal is, is they didn't sing on the record. And that really just, as you would imagine, young my younger audience, kind of the shit just hit the fan with that. Oh, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> They had a Grammy, right? And they had to give it right. back. Right. They won the Grammy for Best New Artist that year. They beat out the Indigo Girls, <laughs> which which slays me. And the producer was a guy named Frank Farian, who had done this many times, a German producer, who had put together all these amazing tracks and hired gorgeous people to lip sync as front people. And this was no different than previous projects he had done, except this one won the Grammy for Best New Artist. And all of a sudden, he developed a conscience and ratted them out. Yeah. It kind of got out of control. <laughs> and here you are doing the comeback record where they actually sang. Yep. Any takeaways from that session that lessons learned about? Spec is a four-letter word. Oh, you did that? Yes. On that was technically, I didn't, but I was, I ended up first engineering my first session within 48 hours of interning <laughs> there. I was basically the, the head engineer had recently left and the second engineer had been promoted to head engineer, a guy named Bjorn Thursrud, who's gone on to do smashing pumpkins and stuff and bjorn was wiped out we were doing 80 hour weeks and there were two sessions in our two rooms one producer in the a room was a guy named leon silvers who had had a big family group in the 70s and then part of mc hammer's crew came in and they were working in the b room and it was my job to kind of head engineer both sessions and get them up and running at the same time and they said hey if you can pull this off you're in and i did <laughs> <laughs> but the idea was there was a label at Granny's house called Taj, which was distributed by my old town. And there was about 10 months of studio time where investors that owned the studio that were also financing the label paid for studio time, but the mixes were never really paid for. And the album was released on smuggled out dat copies of the mixes. So there was a, a large shakedown. People were shifted and shown the door and the people who owned the building who had covered the, the operating costs for those 10 months never got recouped for the $425,000. So there was lawsuits and all this crap. And yeah, I had to sign a non-disclosure for the film. So you'll see, you'll hear more of it in a year when the film comes out, but that's kind of, yeah, the mess. It was a 10 month spec deal and it crashed and burned. So spec deals are, are dangerous. Yeah. 
and once again, younger audience, when we say spec, we're meaning you'll get paid on the back end or you'll, you know, you'll get paid in the future, supposedly. Yeah, if the album does well, right. which is always a, a titanic if. Yeah. So don't do spec deals, ideally. Yes. Well, obviously, that's kind of like jumping into the deep end, <laughs> having really yes. never had any. I mean, you had some basic swim lessons, if we're making an analogy. And nice. you fared well. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, I, I made good relationships with those people in spite of a bad situation. And then that studio just had this series of quality national acts coming occasionally to come in and work. And so right after Millie Vanilli was the Nelson twins, uh. the two twin sons of Ricky Nelson, we did their sophomore record at Granny's house. So clearly we had a hair requirement for a while between Millie Vanilli and the Nelson twins. <laughs> and then there was a change of command and we had Collective Soul. We did the sophomore record for Collective Soul at Granny's house. Then Boys to Men 2. Then I did a song with Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard for Special Olympics there. And then Herman's Hermits came in, Michael Martin Murphy, Bruce Dickinson or Myron Maiden. We did his Balls to Picasso record. We did Shoot All the Clowns there. And then at that point, it got sold. And it was no longer Granny's or Granny's house. It became Sierra Sonic's recording mansion under new ownership. Well, White Snake Slip of the Tongue had been done beforehand. And then White Snake came back to do an album called Restless Heart. Because David Coverdale lives in Lake Tahoe, and it was an easy commute to come from Reno to work at Sierra Sonics to record these albums of his. For a period of time, we had the Neve 8098 console from Abbey Road Studio C, which was, my understanding, it was the Dark Side of the Moon mix desk. This was a Neve that was used for mixing. So some serious history on that desk. We had that for a little while. And then after that, we, this is when Dr. Dre started showing up. So we ended up doing several sessions with Dr. Dre for Chronic 2001. And Eminem came once for the Eminem show as well. The last gig I did of a national act there was Creedence Clearwater Revisited, which is Creedence minus John Fogarty. It's the, the original drummer and bass player, Stu Cook and Doug Clifford, who when Fogarty wasn't so keen to do the Creedence material live anymore, Doug and Stu were like, we'll play it. And it was supposed to be a six-month gig that ended up going for 25 years for Doug and Stu. Wow. So they recorded a live album they brought to me to mix. And that of all the platinum records I worked on, that's the one I mixed that went platinum. And that's that was huh. the extent of the big names that came through, plus add hundreds of local artists in, in between. That's a, that's a real eclectic blend of artists that you just rattled off there. <laughs> so looking back at that time period, what is it you learned about working with a variety of people like that. What did it teach you about yourself as an audio professional in those environments? Well, yeah, biases are dangerous. If you have a disposition against a genre of music, that end up might be the genre that pays your your rent, you know? So, oh, I hate hip hop, but all of a sudden you get good at doing hip hop and all these hip hop clients are, are booking your room. You know, I know people who've left the industry because they hated working on that kind of music and they got pigeonholed into being good at that kind of music. And fortunately, I was like, okay, I'm going to be working with Willie Nelson, and I'm, then I'm going to be working with Bruce Dickinson within three months of each other. And that's a whole different skill sets. And what was super helpful was many of these artists, when they came from out of town, brought a head engineer with them. And that's where I learned a lot of great tricks from A-listers that are out with Dr. Dre or out with Bruce Dickinson. And you learn a lot from those folks. 
But in the case of Willie Nelson, they had me engineer it, which was like, oh my God, really? And oh, thank you. There was a producer, but yeah, that's unnerving. <laughs> You're like, you don't mind engineering Willie Nelson, do you? I'm no, oh, fine, of course. So there's a little bit of the, okay, I'm scared. Let's move past that because I have to produce now. <laughs> right. And in the case of Willie and Merle, it was, you know, the song for Special Olympics and the producer insisted that I mix super quiet. And I only had 45 minutes to mix the song at like 30 dB. And that's a good tool. That's a good practice if you have time to work with it. But huh. I would also argue that you should monitor at 85 dB for a while just to hear how it translates where most people listen to music. Not an option. You know, it's like, nope, keep it down. Don't turn it up. And they're talking behind me. And I'm like, well, if you're going to be making me honor to quiet, I can't tell Freddie Powers and Willie Nelson to shut up. It was funny hearing them talk, though. They're like, Willie asked Freddie, is it, does the boy smoke? <laughs> and and Willie was like, I, Freddie, I, I don't know. I haven't asked him. And I don't do any of that. And I'm here with freaking Willie Nelson and Freddie Powers. And Willie comes up to me and offers me, he goes, more smoke and i'm like oh, i'm sorry i gotta keep my ears on the mix you know <laughs> yes i've turned down weed from the two greatest sources in the music industry willie nelson and dr dre <laughs> yeah you know i'm not a pot smoker myself but i have to say if one of those two guys offered me that i might have to partake just to say <laughs> i smoked with dre or, or willie nelson and consequently i would also add if keith richards wanted me to well maybe you know i would maybe <laughs> Have a cigarette or maybe a drink. I couldn't. There really you go. There you go. Well played that, there. But nice one, Matt. Wow. <laughs> you learn to get over that fear of, oh my gosh, I'm standing in front of Willie Nelson or or Dr. Dr. Or, you know, very famous people. I'm sure it can be a shock to the system and derail you for a minute. So it takes great resolve to go, great. Nice to meet you. Let's get to work. Right. That's it. That's it. It's funny. I, I'm working with celebrities the way my dad did. I met Sammy Davis Jr. when I was 13. We used to do private screenings here in town for the crew after their engagements. Mm -hmm. There was a local theater. They would four wall after the last show, host bar, so the, the, the crew could get a screening of a movie courtesy of the artist. So Sammy did that a lot because he really took care of the crew. So I got to go one time to see a screening of Cannonball Run at like one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so I'm just like, I've heard of Sammy. I've seen him on, on stage. And then in comes Sammy and my dad knew him by name and Sammy looks up to my dad and you can't tell in this video, but I'm, I'm six, eight, I'm very tall. And my dad was six, four. So this, I was like 14 at the time, back when I was six, four. And here comes Sammy, who's five, one, right? Yeah. Black outfit with a white scarf looking amazing. I bet. And he, and he ends up sitting right in front of my dad and I, good thing we weren't sitting in front of him. And Sammy turns around, shakes my dad's hands. Oh, is this one of yours, Dale? He's like, that's my baby, Tom. And he's like, what do you feed this kid? So, you know, I had this interaction with Sammy Davis and like, well, he has, he's funny. He's human. He has actually asked real questions. And then when I first went to USC, I was in the USC band when I was at USC. So that's Hollywood's band. I'm the bass drummer that marches over Ricardo Montalban at the end of the Naked Gun. That's the USC band, and they show me twice. So I did three Rose Bowls, two Super Bowls, one World Series with this band. So we do all these high-end private gigs around Los Angeles, too. And one of my first gigs, Gene Autry was there. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's freaking Gene Autry. And he was getting up there, so he wasn't moving that fast. But still, it's Gene Autry. Respect, right? Right. And there was a gal in the bass drum section with me. She's like, yeah, but he just puts his shoes on one foot at a time 
I go, well, it's easy for you to say. She and Archie, I was like, why are you so calm about it? And she goes, because I grew up next to Bob Hope. Uh-huh. I'm like, well, okay, there's perspective. So she rattled my cage early on when we started having all these celebrity gigs with the USC band. And so I had that primer before I started working with these acts at Granny's house. It's an interesting commentary on being an audio professional in general. Famous people, if you have not seen a lot of famous people, it can really rattle you because it's just like an out-of-body experience. It's like, wait, I'm used to seeing you in other places other than right in front of my face. Right. Yeah, it's true. It, it, there's a disconnect. And what, I've been doing a, a lot of independent films lately, doing dialogue editing and mixing uh, these independent films. And you know, you spend a year looking at a screen at the same face, mm-hmm. working on their dialogue. And then when you finally meet the actors at the, at the screening, you think that they're your best friend, right? You know, like, I've spent a year with you. They don't know me from a hole in the wall. I have to remind myself, they don't know me, even though I've spent a year with them. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like Rush's limelight. You know, I can't pre- pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. This is the, that's the issue of stardom. People who listen to their music or watch their movies over and over again, it's like, oh, I know these people. And you don't. <laughs> so Not trying to assume that you do and work and pump, uh, muscle your way into it works against you in that regard. Yeah. So I learned early on not to do that. And I, I, I drove some folks away doing it when I got all nerded out. But now I'm, you know, I'm practically family with the Coverdales because now I work two days a week for Whitesnake doing a lot of their restoration and reissues of their box sets of their seminal albums for the huh. various anniversary releases. And same with Mike Love of the Beach Boys. When I left Granny's house and went freelance, he has a home studio up in Lake Tahoe that I ended up redesigning for him and doing a lot of engineering for Mike Love's solo projects and some stuff that ended up on the last Beach Boys album. And now I've been friends with the Loves for 20 years. I'm exchanging Christmas cards with these folks. And it's because they trust me and I become, it's not a freaky deal. I have a a listener who worked for the McFerrins, for Bobby McFerrin. Oh my God. That must've been astonishing. For many years. And and it's, it is interesting. It's like when you get to know famous people in that way, obviously they're just people and they just happen to be famous. You know, I'm friends with Brad Gillis from Night Ranger. He lives in town. Yeah. Great example. But, you know, like the first time I connected with him, we had coffee at Starbucks and I was like sitting there going, I'm having coffee with Brad from Night Ranger, (laughs) who I saw as a kid open for ZZ Top. Yeah. And it's just, it it kind of, it's a strange feeling at first. And then when you start to hang out for a bit, they just become like any other friend of yours. You're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I got to go pick up the kids. I'll see you later. Right. Absolutely right. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I want to I want to bring this around back to you. So you've been in Reno since you got back, but Granny's house yeah. is now gone. And the studio yep. you're in now was... It's called Emirage Sound Lab. Okay. Is what I'm sitting in right now. And that's where Endless Love was done. That's where the vocals The earlier version of the studio is where it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's in a different location, but it's the same building, same owner. How did you come into possession of the studio? I don't own it. It's still owned by the same man, a local chiropractor named Dr. Lawrence Davis, who moved here in the late 70s and realized there were no recording studios in Reno and wanted to record, having come from Minneapolis. And he's like, well, I'll get some partners together and we'll put together a studio. And in 78, that was not an easy thing to do. Uh-huh. There's a eight channels of a sound workshop console that he bought with analog desk in 1978 money with Yuri 813 monitors and Ampex MM1100 that used to belong to Beach Boys actually was the multi-track machine and now we have an MM1200. So I I need to back up just one sec cuz I want to clarify this after Granny's house how did you make that transition to here? All right, so I I had recorded here when I was in high school. Dr. Davis was my engineer and he remembered me. Uh, apparently. And and when you're 6'8", people remember you. So I landed the gig at Granny's house after I graduated from college, worked there for eight years, and Dr. Davis had kept hearing about me in the scene. So when I, I went freelance in 1998, I was kind of looking at other places to work out of. And Dr. Davis took a meeting with me and said, oh, I remember you. I recorded you when you were 15 with that big Rush wannabe drum set. And <laughs> we were with Mike Blodgett. I go, yeah, exactly. So Mike was part of the system there. And he said, well, if you think you can book this place, I'll put some money into giving it a facelift. So all through 1999, we redesigned this control room and the lobby and stuff. While I was doing part-time front of house mixing at a, I got a, at a casino. There was a casino here in town called El Dorado. It had a, a show called Spirit of the Dance. It was kind of, kind of an offshoot of Riverdance. Okay. And it was steady enough work at night so I could come here and build the studio during the days with another designer guy. Hmm. And the kid who designed the room actually was an assistant engineer from Granny's house who was trying to get into the interior design program at Arizona State. And he said, Tom, let me design your new room so I have a showcase room to get into the design program. And it worked. So a 23-year-old kid did the design on it and mostly nailed it. Wow. Yeah, it was. it's bonkers. So we opened January 2000 under the current name Mirage, which is the word image and mirage kind of squished together. Mm -hmm. And all during the 80s, 
in this location. It was called Axe Tracks. And then in for a few years before it was here, when it was in a different location, it was called Sunwood. So Dr. Davis has been the owner the whole time. He's the longest running studio owner in the state of Nevada. And this is the longest running commercial studio in the state of Nevada. And I've been here since 98. So that just, that gave you a home. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's been quite, quite cool. We're, we're basically partners. I'm the studio manager and I run all the stuff here. I do the sessions and he makes sure the power stays on and comes and works here when he can because he's a singer songwriter. I, I get the sense and, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. First of all, on this show, my longtime listeners know that I talk about diversification a lot, being, yeah. being an audio professional yeah. and getting income streams from various places. Yeah. Is that something you do? Yeah. When I went freelance, I was scared to death of it because I had a steady gig at a sizable room. And I'm like, well, this is what you do next. If you have a steady gig in a room, now you want to spread your wings, you go freelance. And there's all safety nets are gone when you do that. So I was doing work here and there were lean times and there were, there were, there were good times especially depending on the economy. If the economy was doing good, people were willing to spend some disposable income to do a vanity record, you were doing all right. But if the economy's tanked, like in 2008, 2009, you're dying. So it was an omen that that short-term front of house gig showed up. Even though I'm not a live person, I don't do live sound. I don't like chasing feedback. I don't enjoy that. <laughs> so yeah. I'm definitely a studio guy and I recommend live people for live sound. And then the Mike Love gig, presented itself. And I ended up doing boatloads of work up at his house. It was like, okay, I can't turn this down. And Dr. Davis was fortunate enough to be understandable enough because he's still running his, his operation for his medical practice. So this really didn't have to be the breadwinner for either of us. We had these other things diversifying, like you said. And then Dr. Davis said back in the eighties, he used to have a recording class that was very popular. And I had been getting a lot of input from people that I should start teaching this. A lot of people at the university said, we'd love to have you come over to the university at some point, but we have a tenured professor that is kind of has the gig. And since they're tenured, it's on their schedule. So in 2004, I said, well, fine, I'll just start doing private classes here. So in 2004, I started creating a, a workshop here and it was a huge success. A lot of people started coming in and taking classes from me and it got so popular that word spread quickly, even at the university. And then this tenured professor retired. So in 2007, I was asked to bring that over to the university and take over the program he had. And it was just two classes at that point with 11 students. And now we have six classes and I have 60 students there. Then in the midst of all this, I reconnect with Whitesnake after many years. Cause in, in 96, when I was the assistant on Russell's heart, I was the tea boy, you know, I was making 21 glasses of carrot juice a day for Whitesnake because they're on this juicing kick at that mm. point, right? So I'm just the kid and, you know, there's head engineers, there's producers. I'm putting mics when they tell me to put it, but you know, I wasn't the guy. Fast forward 23 years, I get a phone call asking if anyone has a B3 organ here in town. And I said, we do. We have a Hammond B3 here. And Whitesnake's people are like, we want to book your room for a day because we need to shoot a music video with a Hammond organ for a, a remake of the Deep Purple classic Burn because mm. David Coverdale was also the lead singer of Deep Purple. So they did, Whitesnake did a, an album of purple songs. And so we did this video here and David's looking at me going, Thomas, so good to see you again after all these years. 
So we're doing these box sets. These are, you know, it's the 30th anniversary of 87, 30th anniversary of Slide It In and Slip of the Tongue. And we have found all the old demo cassettes and the DAT tapes and the, the reel-to-reels that we've digitized, but there's too much to put on one disc. What would you do? And I'm like, oh my God, David Coverdale wants my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the carrot juice guy. I, it's, uh, this is nuts. 23 years later. But the, I'm like, um, well, you can do what Peter Gabriel did. And he's like, oh, what did Peter do? Huge fan of Peter, as I am. And on the 25th anniversary of So, Peter Gabriel's So album, there was a disc on that called DNA, which was these medleys. It was like 90 seconds of the first demo that then edits into 90 seconds of the first pre-production recording into 90 seconds of the first monitor mix into 90 seconds of the penultimate mix. So you can hear how the song grew from its infant stage to the penultimate mix. And David looks at me and goes, you can do that? I'm like, yeah. He goes, come over immediately. So they have, have since built a facility in South Reno and they gave me all the demos of In the Still of the Night, drummer auditions, every version of In the Still of the Night. And I said, okay, thanks for giving me the big song. Again, a point where I could be terribly intimidated, right? Mm -hmm. you know, that and Here here I Go Again are the two biggest songs he, he's released. So I'm like, oh, Jesus. Um, all right. So I stitch together a medley and he loses his mind. It's like seven minutes long and it's the birth of and evolution of In the Still of the Night. And he goes, do the whole album. So I ended up doing a medley for each song on that record, and it was called The Evolutions Disc, which is on the 87 30th anniversary box set. So I've done the same thing for the Slip of the Tongue box set, and we didn't have enough to do one for Slide It In, but then now Restless Heart comes out, ironically, the album I started with them in 25 years ago, I'm now co-producing the box set, the anniversary box set of <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so it's a four CD, one DVD collection of uh, Restless Heart and well, there's an evolutions disc, but yeah, they, they saw how well I did that and they just kept throwing more stuff at me. And I'm like, I could do this. I could do this. And once they uh, try you out a couple of times, they're like, oh, we can trust him. And then next thing I know, I'm part time. So I work two days a week for Whitesnake, two days a week at UNR and two weeks, two days a week here. I've been working 80 hour weeks since 1991. And last week was my 30th anniversary of doing this stuff. Yeah. And, and audience, I have to tell you, like I mostly do. I would say 99% of the interviews I do are remote at roughly 10 a.m. my time. And when Tom and I were connecting, he said, hey, I, I, I got to do like 10 p.m. And I, I did a double take there and I thought, I wonder if he means a.m. No, he means p.m. He really does mean yep, p.m. So, totally mean. And I have a session after this. Oh, my God. So I have to ask, this is something that I always go into with my guests. Let's talk a little business without specifics. What is your overall financial philosophy as an audio professional? In order to survive, do you have advice for others based on your own mistakes or based on your own experiences that you could convey to, to us? Yeah, excellent question. And yeah, this is the kind of thing I have to, I kind of hip students to. When you're trying to get something that is going to create income for you as an audio engineer, it's best not to reinvent the wheel. So knowing the market that you're in and you realize that I would really love to be a metal engineer. I want to do all these metal records. How many other metal engineers are there in your market? And if there are 800, <laughs> chances are it's going to take a while for you to get enough of a clientele 
to make a dent into that. So you're like, okay, maybe being specializing in metal isn't going to be able to, to get my name spread out sooner. Mm-hmm. And metal wasn't my genre, but the, the reason I got a trusted following in Reno was a metal band, a screaming media band called False Silent. I had never done screamo music, but I, I appreciated technical playing because I was a big prog rock fan. So the technicality of metal was like, oh my God, these guys are killing it. But the screaming, what the hell is that about? And I, I had to put down my biases and listen to it with open ears and go, okay, I see the artistry. And now I can hear good screamers from bad screamers. And I did this one record and people were like, dude knows how to get some heavy tones. And then this market was small enough. No, there was like one or two other people doing that genre where work started coming up my way. So now I have a much different clientele. There's four other metal places in town all the metal acts go to i barely see a metal act anymore which i miss dearly (laughs) but now it's all word of mouth and it's like singer songwriters it's jam bands it's jazz groups a lot of jazz outfits i just know how to put a microphone in a good place and that quality of work regardless of the genre people heard it and said okay tom knows how to get good recording Mm -hmm. with a microphone because so many people now it's just all sequencing and the sounds are made for you in a box first, which is great. And it's, it is a challenge to get a good mix from stuff like that. And knowing when to choose the correct sounds that don't fight each other is a skill. That's mm-hmm. production, of course. Well, so I get what you're saying, but bring it back to the, to the financial part of it, how your, your survival in that. All right. So for, you know, word of mouth is, is how you, you build the, the base, right. And you get more work. So then once you, start getting people in the door of your facility or if you're being hired to go to a facility with them mm-hmm. then you go out of your way to make sure that you follow through through the project so they don't have a good first impression then you end up sucking by the end you want them calling you back later for the next project mm-hmm. it's the repeat work that is is key that then because the, the, I've, I've seen people where they'll get the gig once blow it and never get the call again mm-hmm. And because uh, no one likes working with assholes, right? Because <laughs> you're, if you're in a room 12 hours with somebody, they want to be able to like you for 12 hours. Yeah. And if you're being a jackass, they're like, yeah, maybe we'll call this session early. And anything that's going to shorten the hours is less money, right? And it's a production style now also not to upsell recording time, but it takes time to produce a performance and watching a singer of any genre, a rapper, a singer, opera, whatever, cutting a vocal, doing a single take the way they used to do with Sinatra back in the day, that's fine, but there weren't that many Sinatras. And there are a lot of people who think they're that good, but going in and working with a performer to pull a performance out of them takes time, punching or comping. Granted, People are like, well, you're just trying to sell more studio time. No, I'm actually trying to get a better performance out of you. Mm. But it takes more time to do it. The best question is someone asks, how much does it cost to make a record? And that's that's like asking how much it costs to build a house. There are too many variables. Yeah. Right? How big is the house you want? What genre is it? How many players in the band? Is there a horn section? And how do these guys have chops recording in a studio before? Because working with an engineer who's worked with National Acts and, and knows the quality to be expected, they're like, can you pull the Quincy Jones, leave your ego at the door 
and trust this person to spend the time to pull good recordings out of you. So if you just like say, hey, go, and you record a pass and they do a, a good take and you're like, hey, good. And they're going to look at you and say, is it good? Can we and I do better? And a lot of times young engineers don't have the nerve to, to give them input. Yeah. And it's like, no, they're coming to you for guidance and seeing seasoned producers go into the minutia with an artist is pretty impressive. Yeah. And a lot of kids don't get a chance to see that because those big complex studios, you know, record plants and head factories are gone where you had apprentice underneath these huge names. I was lucky enough to see some of these producers and work under them. So I saw how that process worked. So I tried to instill that with other people. So A, you, you, you spend more time to get better performances and that ends up being more billable hours, but they feel good about spending the money on it because they got, they got their money's worth. Yeah. And if you just hurry up and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to record four drum tracks in four hours. I was like, well, how much time did you spend setting up getting tones? How much time did you spend with them to make sure everything felt good? And it's like, oh, it was good enough. I was like, we're not here to do it wrong. Right. <laughs> They're paying a lot of good money that earn, they, you know, they killed themselves to earn to do a great recording, not a medial one. It takes time. So being willing to, to extend yourself as a producer, once you've established that trust with uh -huh. them, obviously, because that's a huge trust thing. Then they're like, okay, that took twice. That took two hours to cut a lead vocal. Hmm. I didn't expect that. Many artists don't expect that. Yeah. And then we may have to go in and do some vocal editing afterwards because we had some great performances. And if I, cause back on the tape days, if it was out of tune, we had to punch it again. But now I got a great performance. This has all the great energy, but it's 10 cents sharp. Okay, I can I can take care of that. Wow, this takes a lot longer than I thought. Yeah, but the end result is something that sounds like a record. Now, 20 years ago, stuff like tuning vocals wasn't mandatory. Right. It, was, it wasn't a thing. So there was some well, pitchy stuff that got out there that doesn't get out there anymore. And that's too bad because... Sometimes we get lost in the weeds about overcorrecting it just to be commercially acceptable, which is too bad. So that's hours of studio time that you could be billing. I want to ask you, because you teach, yeah. what are some of the things that, like, what's the top two issues you see with students? What are the mistakes that they're making or, or misconceptions that they have? That they don't know how to ride a fader. Oh. They just think... And this was, you know, the point of compression to begin with when they first invented it for the FCC. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I can strap a vocal on a compressor and squish the death out of it and and, and ignore a fader. And I was like, well, you've successfully demolished the dynamic range by putting a compressor on it and sucked the life out of the performance. And you're missing the opportunity of creating your own performance. You know, before automation, mm -hmm. mixes were unique performances. <laughs> and I got to work with Bill Porter who was Elvis's engineer. He did Elvis's first three albums and he was his live engineer at the end. And we didn't do alternate mixes. We, we printed a mix and we moved on. And I, after the first one, I said, should we do a vocal up? Should we do an instrumental? Should we do a performance? And he's like, oh, oh yeah. And then turns out the good thing we did because all the masters got lost on a plane flight. The two inches and the half half inch masters were gone. The only thing left were the dat tapes of the mixes. And they ended up having to re-record vocals to the performance mixes made. 
Otherwise, the, the album was lost forever. So thank God we did, but we lost one song because he didn't do it on the first song. So I, 10 years later, I asked a mutual friend that was Bill's last assistant, like, why didn't Bill know that? And he's like, because it's Bill Porter, man. You know, when he did Born in the Ghetto, it was like, push the faders on the eight track, ride the level, done. Slice the tape off. There's your master. There's no going back for a vocal up. There was no going back for a anything. Different production value. Different production, completely. And to that point, when they did an anniversary reissue of, and they were trying to do remixes of Elvis stuff, they were, trying, they were doing like Bored in the Ghetto, I think. And they found the eight track masters and there was no horns on it. And they're like, well, where are the horns? Hmm. Turns out he ran out of tracks. So he got the mix together, brought in a live horn section that played live while he was printing the mix. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that doesn't surprise me. That kind of mixing doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. People are afraid to touch faders and ride levels. So I, I, I have to grill it in students. No, actually, there's a performance in grabbing a fader. And they're like, that's a lot of work. I go, this is how Bohemian Rhapsody was mixed. It's <laughs> a lot of you work. Know? What Static are, faders. What, what are the other things that, that you notice in your students? Compression. They just think all things are cured with compression. They just crush it more and crush it more. You can make it louder and louder. That, and the joke is, and, when, and this goes back to when I was at USC, we joked there are two rules of pro audio. Rule number one, up is louder, right? Rule number two, louder is better. End of lesson. And uh, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's crap. It's actually not right, but it might as well be scripture the way the, the industry is right now with everything trying to be louder than anything else, the loudest war and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So having been raised in this generation of loudness war where everything is crushed, everything's maxed, that's their goal of good audio. And it's weird playing them mixes before 1990 and having yeah. them go, here's dynamic response. And they're like, oh, interesting. And they're like, well, have you heard the, the Daft Punk record? It sounds like an old 70s record. He's like, well, it kind of does, but let me play you average white band from the 70s and the, their faces melt off. Here's Babylon's sister. There's an entire class at Berkeley School of Music analyzing this mix, <laughs> an entire semester of one mix analyzing. That's transient response. That's dynamic range. Yeah. And so unlearning the compression is a big issue with younger engineers. A great one, it was one that I was pointing out to, a lot of young engineers overdo hi-hats. So they think kick, snare, and hat are being the most important part of a, of a beat, especially with hip-hop. The hi-hat should be as loud as the kick and snare, Ooh. where the kick and snare is the bread and butter. The hi-hat's the, the gravy in between. Plus, due to the nature of a hi-hat being a high-frequency sound that cuts through a mix like a laser, you don't need to push that fader as much because it's going to cut through easier. And they're like, oh. And if I don't say it, I get a lot of loud hi-hats. Yeah, well, we're both drummers, so I'm sure that to us that's like, yeah, that just seems wrong. <laughs> to have the hi-hat that loud. And I, I was told by a non-drummer engineer this when I was in college. Hmm. And I listened to some of my old student mixes and, and went, yeah, I was a Rush fan. <laughs> I wanted to hear every nuance. I was overplaying the hi-hat part because it's also a function of playing, isn't it? As a drummer, you can understand. Kick snare is the backbone. If you overplay the hi-hat, that changes the feel of the pattern and changes the groove. Yeah. So good session players know not to do that. And so a lot of student musicians and student drummers come in saying, hey, 
or even clients here, a little less hi-hat and give me more rim shots on that snare drum. And they're like, really? I said, yeah, I need, I need boom, chick, boom, chick, less the groove is boom, chick, boom, chick, not. So you've been at it for a while. What would you? At least 10 minutes. At least. Yeah. This, yeah, this, this is your first day in the studio. Congratulations, Tom. So as far as your survival over the years, has it, yeah. you know, being an audio professional, do you, do you find it challenging just to make a, a good living or have you figured out what the magic formula is for you? Uh, to be completely honest, once the university gig came in is the first time I felt stable. Yeah. I was living check by check until then. I was in very, oh, here's the big one. Oh. You university students don't drink the Kool-Aid and start your credit card debt in, in college. Oh yeah. That's a huge one. And it took me 20 years to pay that off. And once I was past that, I was able to start saving for a down payment for a house and all these other things that was holding. I had no idea how much it was holding me up until I finally got past it. Credit card debt is the devil. It is absolutely the devil. You are preaching to the choir, my friend. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> And it's easy to get, especially when you're, you know, in the college, you're like, you know, we don't have to pay for interest for a year or whatever. And, oh, I can buy this new SSL uh, 2 plus. I can buy this 414 or I can buy this whatever. I'll pay for it later. Well, also on the same similar perspective, what about work-life balance over the years? Have you, I mean, you, you're talking about working 80 hour weeks. Yes. So I failed at that one handsomely. I was once asked what I could do to be excited about waking up to go to work every day uh -huh. and being musically creative was that. So I have a lot of joy in my work, which a lot of people don't have in their work. Yeah. But I don't have a family. I'm not married. I don't have kids. Never had time for it. And there are times I regret that. I have many friends who complain they don't see enough of me. And I recently lost my mom after a run with cancer. So I'm you know, sorry. I lost hundreds of hours of studio time this year trying to help her through the final stages. And then I had COVID for a month in January. So I was out oh. for three and a half weeks. Wow. And uh, so I'm, I'm madly killing myself trying to get caught up with everything. Right. And, you know, friends are like, you know, when do we see you? I'm like, I'm booking myself out in February now in this room. And wow. And Whitesnake, I, I have worked for four more years with them. And UNR is ongoing and we're developing a degree program and all this other stuff. So this is the, the, the busy I was hoping for for years. And it wasn't until I was in my 50s that it finally showed up. And it was, yeah, it was, a, okay, I, I finally got a steady gig with UNR. Awesome. And I can play in the studio the rest of the time. And then, careful what you wish for, here comes another Hall of Famer who needs not carrot juice, but, you know, something else that I got to be very good at. And now everyone wants more of me. So hopefully everyone can find a, a gig where they, that's what happens. They, they, they find a gig where everyone wants more of them. And maybe you, you'll be doing two gigs and the two of them will be enough to keep you interested because this room's the most fun of all my gigs because yeah. I get to work with all these different genres of music and all these amazing players. I learned the most, obviously, with UNR because we have to create a, an educational discipline for it. Yeah. But the amount of institutional knowledge I learned working with Whitesnake about promotions, about legal, about mechanical masters. I've helped them locate over 300 missing reels around the world 
that were lost due to a weird licensing issue. So coordinating the spreadsheets and making contacts, just a weird combination of happenstance. I was the, I was a stage manager for the for the, the this country's longest running independent music festival up until two years ago. It was called the Black Potato Music Festival in New Jersey, and a friend from college at USC, the University of Social Connections, uh, created this <laughs> label called Black Potato, and it was an Americana festival. And the only rule is you couldn't you couldn't be signed to a label to play our festival. It was completely indie, and. One of the guitar players who's with an indie band had this really nice Gretsch hollow body. I'm like, man, nice guitar. And he's like, well, I got a job that, that allows me to buy nice toys. And I go, where do you work for? And he's like, well, I work for Iron Mountain. Well, it turns out Iron Mountain is where all the, allegedly all these missing tapes were. It's a, it's a national company that does storage. And so due to that one connection at a music festival in New Jersey, I was able to work my way through Universal and find missing tapes that had been gone for 15 years. Networking, a big part. That's the other thing I teach students, networking. You never know who the next person you meet is and how, A, you can help them, A, that's A, how yeah. you might be able to help them and then B, how they might be able to help you. It sounds to me, you know, I know you mentioned not having a family, but it also sounds like you have such joy in your work that right. I'm sure that the Coverdales are like family to you. And so the, yep. it's an all-encompassing thing. Yep. Yeah, I have a big family. Rather than a close family, I have I have a big one with a lot of people who love me a lot, and I love a lot of people I love back. Yeah, and it allows you to go super deep into the thing you love to do. Right, right. And that's not always, you know. And I'm not saying I would ever give up my family, but the grass is always greener because, like, there's you know, there's times when you're like, oh, if I didn't have to do this, I could take a deep dive into this. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that you may have mixed feelings about it, but I, I see the pros of it. Yeah. Oh, and it's funny, whenever I have guest speakers come talk at UNR stuff, but we had like Jeff Emmerich come speak at UNR, you know, about six months before he passed away. So I asked him, you know, how did you find balance? Because he was married and his wife passed away. And he was like, you don't. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's heavy. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, he, he never found it either. Yeah. And he was married and... It was hard for him to balance it. He loved his wife a lot, from what I could tell. He, she was awesome. Yeah. And died of cancer early. And so he never remarried, and he just went back into his work. Where Chris Fogel, married. Married, great, two kids. But I've, I've always in, in awe of him and the fact that he's had a family the whole time. And he's traveling the world recording at Abbey Road and in New York or in Prague or something. Yeah. And they make it work. I was once browbeaten by Mrs. Love, Mike Love's wife, saying, Tom, why haven't you gotten married yet? You're a catch. And I'm like, Jackie, look at my schedule. What woman would put up with this? Yeah. And, and without blinking, she said, the right one. There's somebody for everybody. You never yeah. know. Well, Tom, we are out of time. Where can yeah. people find out more about you? Sadly, my website is a bit out of date, but it's going to be updated soon. So it's my company's called Inspired Amateur Productions because there's nothing more dangerous than the Inspired Amateur. <laughs> and uh, so it's www.inspired-amateur.com. Okay. www.inspired-amateur.com. And hopefully, I have a big release coming out on Black Friday. This year, I'm doing a, my first single. It's a charity release benefiting music in the schools in Native American Paris. It's a cover of a song called Battle Scar, originally recorded by Rush and Max Webster. Okay. And I, I'm doing a big promo to put this 
two music videos and a behind the scenes documentary together for it to help these two causes. And um, I will have the website hopefully revamped by then. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The term, I have a website, it's outdated, is, is a constant thing I hear from everybody. Yeah. Oh, my website's outdated, but that's okay. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes for okay, the audience. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. I can also give you the UNR link. I'm under the faculty at the University oh, of Oh, absolutely. Any links you yeah. got, send them over. Okay, cool, man. That's great. That's great. All right, Tom, thank you so much for making time for me. I really appreciate it. It's, Thanks it's for squeezing great. me in. It's such an ungodly hour. Well, it's great to meet you. Likewise. I hope to meet you in person with Mike Blodgett sometime. I will put a link to Mike's episode in the show notes for this episode so you can Electric check. Sparky Land. Woo! Electric Sparky Land. Best electrician on the planet, too. Absolutely right. All right. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Tom Gordon here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, we have a link on the Working Class Audio website for guest suggestions, which is different than the contact form. So if you could be so kind, put your guest suggestions where the guest suggestions go and then fill out the contact form for anything other than that. That would be great. would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, always feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. I would love to hear from you. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the mystical, magical voice of Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, friends, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>